I was once a, a pastor of youth and family ministries in Denver. And at that point, when we first moved to Denver, I didn't have any children. And I remember talking with the elders about this ministry that I was responsible for. And uh, again, it involved uh, responsibility to assisting parents as they raise their children. And I remember in that period of my life thinking, man, these parents are so strict. They worry all the time. Like, they just need to chill out. And of course, now that I have three children, I realize how naive I was. And the words I remember from that meeting with the elders was one of them saying to me, why would I listen to anything you have to say to me about parenting? You don't even have any children. Which at the time just felt very harsh, and I think he still could have received something from me, but the point is still rather well taken. And I remember back to my relationship with my parents. You know, you go through these periods, right, as, as a person, as a teenager, as a young adult, and you think you know best, and your parents are, are, uh, are just dumb and don't know the times, and I'm already beginning to hear those kinds of words from my own children, which is amazing. It starts so early. But I took for granted that uh, my parents' love for me, really. And uh, again, just thinking myself knowing best, um, I, I didn't understand the depth of love they had for me. And so it's, it is, again, much easier, and it sounds so cliche, but as a parent myself now, to understand how they were doing their best to, to love me, to protect me, to teach me in the way that I should go. Um, that doesn't mean to say that they are without flaws or that they didn't make mistakes, but it helps me, again, now that I'm a parent myself, to, to have more compassion for them and their mistakes and understand that you know, they too are broken people who were trying to do their best to, to love me um, as broken people. And, and again, their hearts were in the right place and they, they have to take responsibility for their actions and, and yet at the same time, I can have compassion for them and, and not just... Uh, definitely as a 44-year-old, shake my fist at them for the things that they did wrong, but to, to have compassion for them. I think similarly, in the same way in our relationship with God, it is easy for us to be like a teenager and just take for granted the love that God has for us. And in that taking for granted God's love for us, um, we can end up just kind of going through the motions of being a child of God, whether that's in worship or in life. Um, in that, that place in our hearts, we, we take God for granted. We, we don't engage as fully our hearts in following Christ and following God. Now, it's interesting because theologically, we would say that God is self-sufficient. And that means that God doesn't need us. God doesn't need our love. He doesn't need our existence. He is self-sufficient. And yet it is interesting that even though God didn't need us, God doesn't need to save us, God doesn't need to restore us, the theological truth that we often forget is that God wants us. And that in our Reformed tradition, we would say, in his good pleasure, God wants relationship with us. He doesn't need us to survive, but he wants to be in relationship with us. And he calls us to that relationship again and again. And again, in that place of taking God for granted, we can, in our brokenness, struggle with feeling ungrateful uh, towards God, or we can struggle with being hypocritical in our relationship with God, saying one thing and yet doing another. And in today's um, psalm, what we're going to see is the psalm is telling us that the antidote to that is thankfulness to God 
and dependence on God. And we're going to hear God in this psalm calling his people back to himself. Calling for renewal, renewal in his people and a commitment to themselves. And what we'll see is that really just this main point, and it's very long, but just track with me. God wants relationship with us. So let's not go through the motions of worship and life. Rather, let us gratefully worship God and faithfully live in dependence of him. I'm not going to say it again. You'll, you'll, you'll get the gist of it as we go through. But we're looking at a psalm of Asaph today. In case you don't know who Asaph is, Asaph is a Levite who was like a musical assistant to uh, He-Man. I always laugh when I say this word. He-Man who was uh, directing music at the Tabernacle and Temple. I laugh at He-Man because I collected He-Man when I was a kid. So I can't help but see a lots of He-Man figurines when I say this. Um, so let's dig into today's psalm. We're going to look at this first section first, section uh, one, which is uh, verses one through six. And we, we hear in here, and I won't go through all the verses, um, God's specific call to renewed relationship, specifically a covenant renewal from his people. If you look at Psalm five, Psalm five, I mean, it's not Psalm five, verse five, verse five says, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. We see here in this language, God is, is, is referring to this relationship that he has with the covenant community. His people. Those who have proclaimed faith in him, belief in him, proclaim a desire to walk with him and to be, to be obedient to him. And yet in this section, what we hear is, is really a very powerful call to renewal. And there, there, there is this, um, this tone of judgment in this, uh, this first section as well. And so it's a, it's a call to a renewal of the covenant that they've believed in, in terms of God's laws and commandments. And we hear this language of the whole earth being called to be a witness to this covenant renewal between God and his people. And even... The, Tinges of a call for the whole earth, not only to be a witness to the covenant renewal, but also an invitation for whole earth to become a part of this covenant community. Now, this 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 tone of judgment in there suggests that in this this writing of this psalm, that the covenant community of God had not been faithful to God. It is difficult when we look at verse six, for instance. We hear this word: "The heaven declares his righteousness, for God Himself is judge." The fact is we, we just don't like to be judged. We don't like to hear about God's judgment in scripture. We don't like the idea that God is holding us accountable and judging us. And yet it's important to remember, because, and we forget this, because we, we tend, when we hear judge, we, we think very legal, legally speaking we are judged. And there, of course there's truth to that. But what we forget about God being judge is that primarily and specifically here too, it is in the context of relationship. And his desire is not just to pronounce legal punishment on someone. His desire is to see reconciliation between him and his people. He desires to make things right between himself and his people. He wants to restore his people to the right order of things. Again, we resist 
this idea of being judged or there being any authority over us in, in our sinful nature, in our very individualistic American society. And yet, when we sing one of my personal favorite hymns that we did today, we sang today, Come Thou Fount. When we sing these words, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So often there's such a resonance in our hearts in it because we recognize there is a God, there is a goodness that he calls us to, and there is this inclination, this proneness of us to walk away from this God and the goodness that he calls us to. Yes, God is just, and if he really is just, then he must punish wrongs. He would not be a God worthy of worship if he did not punish wrongs. But God being just also means that he desires to make all wrongs right. It means that he wants to restore what is broken. It means that he wants to reconcile people to himself. And so though we may react against the idea of God being judge, at the same time, there's a part of us that longs for God to be judge because we have no hope of wrongs being made right if God is not judge, if he is not just as God himself. So in this first section, we hear God's call, clear call, come back to me, renew your relationship with me, and follow obediently to what I have given you. And then he goes on into the next section, verses 7 through 15, and I'll read these verses. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. I just want to stop there for a moment. So notice he says, for, for, sorry, he says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. He's not saying okay, if your heart's not really into it, then don't bother worshiping anymore. He's saying, I'm calling you back to what worship is really about. Yes, keep bringing your sacrifices, but remember, I don't actually need any of this stuff. I don't need your cattle. I don't need your bulls. And we can do that. And we, you know, we're not sacrificing animals anymore, but when we tithe, sometimes we tithe like God needs our money. God doesn't need our money. He is the God, the king, with the cattle on a thousand hills. All of it is his. When he calls us to tithe, first and foremost, he's calling for our hearts. He's calling for our thanksgiving. He's calling us to give with a cheerful heart. He's calling us to recognize him as God. He doesn't need our cattle. That actually might work in Iowa, right? Some of you might have cattle, maybe. No, I don't know if anyone is a farmer here, but um, he doesn't need our cattle. He doesn't need our money. He needs, or theologically speaking, he wants our hearts. And specifically, he goes on to say, well, first he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Right, he's sort of in a, playful way, mocking our thinking that he, he needs us to give us this stuff, right? He's like, I'm not hungry for food here. Like, it's all mine. And he says instead, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving 
and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Um, one commentator, Mark Furtado, said this about this section. Formalism is an ever-present danger in the worship of God. It does not matter if the style of worship is traditional or contemporary. The danger of going through the external motions without the proper inner disposition is always present. We know this. We've all done this. We've all showed up on a Sunday and we're just going through the motions because we're supposed to, because that's what we believe. But our hearts are far from engaging in the worship of God. We don't we could go through a whole service and not even feel any thankfulness to God. Just go through the motions. And God says, I don't need you to go through the motions. I want your heart. I want your thanksgiving. That's a sign that His truths have become, be, began to make an impact on our hearts and our souls And so this idea of thankfulness, our belief in God, our relationship with God producing thankfulness is, is a, a good measuring stick of where we're at with the Lord. Is our faith in God producing thankfulness to God? Thankfulness to the things that we have. And it's so funny in our increasingly secular age where study and more studies show how powerful thankfulness is. And we hear people preach about the need to be thankful you know, and it's you know, secular point of view, right? So separated from faith in God, let's, let's just in a secular way find a way to be thankful for what we have. And I think there's, there's good, good in that. But I think ultimately it's, it's faith in God that produces the deepest thankfulness, gratitude. Because it really makes sense of the world and what we've been given. God calls us again not to stop going to worship, but to stop going through the motions of worship without engaging our hearts. You might, we, we do it a little bit here, but you might have been to churches where there's a prelude at the beginning of the, the service. The prelude is not just like a, hey everyone, shut up now and come sit down. That's not what the prelude is for. The prelude is a, Get your hearts ready for this special time with God. Yes, you can have time with God anytime you want, but Sunday worship is meant to be a special time with God together with the people of God. And the prelude is meant to say, get ready to engage your hearts. Don't just go through the motions that we do every Sunday. Engage your hearts. He goes on to say, though, oh, actually... Let's not move on to that yet. I love this example from Jesus, and I'm going to read it. Luke 17, verses 11 through 18. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And he saw them, and he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? 
Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. What a powerful example of Jesus saying, thanksgiving to God matters. One out of 10 of lepers who were healed here came back to praise God for their healing. The other nine were happy to go along to take the gift with them, but not return to the giver of that gift in thankfulness. And it's so easy for us to do that. We take what we want from God, yet we don't return the gift of praise to him, the gift of thanks to him. And it's interesting, right? Again, so in the Psalm 50, God is speaking specifically to his people. And Jesus' example is also meant to pierce the hearts of his people. He's saying, okay, one out of ten lepers came back after they were healed, and the one person was the foreigner, was the not religious person, is the one who doesn't believe in me as God. It was meant to show and convict the Jewish people that Jesus was speaking to that you need to turn back to God to offer your thanksgiving and praise to him. But in the psalm, it goes on, verse 15, ending this section, and call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And it shows that this thankfulness that God calls us to is very much directly related to our sense of dependence on God. He says, call upon me in your day of trouble and I will deliver you. And what it's implied in there is that when we are delivered and we see God's work of deliverance, then we give more praise to him, more thanks to him. Our hearts are filled with more thankfulness. So he calls us to this life, not of going through the motions of worship, but he calls us to a life of thankfulness to God and of dependence on God instead of this formal kind of worship. But let's see how he continues in this psalm. In section 3, which is 16 through 23, there's this call to true obedience. I'm I'm not going to read all of these verses, but let me highlight a couple of these. Verse 16, it says, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? So he's beginning to point out, again, that person who claims to be one of the people of God, who proclaims and professes God's laws and, and has God's laws on his lips. But he's saying, you are one of those who say you believe, and yet, that's verse 18, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. And he goes on to talk about slandering, being a person who slanders. Now, it's important for us to remember, like, we're not to read this section as don't have fellowship with people who don't believe. When he says, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him, the idea of this word please is you approve of what he's doing. Yes, go steal. It's all good. You keep company with adulterers. He's not just saying you're hanging out with sinners. He's, he's saying you're okay with adultery. You approve of adultery. And he does go on to say, you know, give the example of slander being on the very lips of this person who had just professed and recited God's law on his own lips. So again, referencing 
um, this commentary by Futado, he says this, right along with formalism comes the danger of hypocrisy. The wicked are not pagans living outside the covenant community. Rather, the wicked are those who say all the right things during the covenant renewal ceremony, but who live in contradiction to their profession of faith. And this psalm, I think, brings to mind so powerfully Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. What we see in this, the, the, the section two that we just talked about was the older brother, right? He is the one who struggles with formalism, who simply goes through the motions of doing the right things, of being a good son, and yet the elder son is not actually grateful for his relationship with his father. He's not grateful for all the benefits that come with being a part of that family. And yet, in this section, we see the hypocrite. And so the prodigal son is the hypocrite, right? I have no doubt when the prodigal son was still with his family, I'm sure he gave lip service to, yes, I'm a son of this family. Yes, I'll try to do what is right. And yet, of course, we know this parable well where the prodigal son treats his dad like he's dead, asks for the inheritance, shames his family, and goes off and spends his inheritance in wild living. He goes on to do whatever he pleases, though he has given lip service to being a part of that family. Which one do you relate to? Formalism or hypocrisy? The elder brother or the prodigal son? Usually it's one or the other. Of course, we can struggle at different times in our lives with either thing. And those are, of course, our powerful examples. And we may not fit so cleanly into either of those categories. And yet, in this psalm, the call again is to gratefulness towards God and dependence on God. Not just doing the right things and going through the motions and not walking away from God and doing whatever we please, but to live in thankfulness to God, the God who loves us and calls us to himself. Some of you know and some of you don't know that I'm from Hong Kong originally and this week my hometown is heavy on my heart and you may not know what's been going on but you know time says that Hong Kong's in the forefront of the fight against freedom which is actually pretty exciting to hear as someone from there. But the, all the drama is about this bill that is trying to be passed in, in their version of the Senate Congre- in, in the version of the Congress and it's a bill that essentially gives the government rights to extradite people who have been accused of crimes to, into many countries, but specifically gives the ability to extradite them into China, which is what is stoking the fear of many who live in Hong Kong. There's already examples of like publishers uh, who are anti-China being disappearing and then showing up on Chinese public TV and, and, and admitting crimes that they've committed against the Chinese government. So these, these examples are at the forefront of Hong Kong people's mind and that this extradition bill raises these fears that this might happen. And so at its height, they, and this is, you, have to, you, you probably don't understand, but a million people out of a city of seven million took to the streets to protest this bill that was supposed to be debated um, in, the, in their version of the Congress. And at one point, there, there was some violence between the police and protesters, and that tear gas and pepper spray and bat- baton beatings and rubber bullets were used. And it was, 
there was this moment where uh, she's called the chief executive, but think like the president of Hong Kong, um, took to TV to speak to the situation. Her name's Carrie Lam. And in this, and she, she got a lot of flack for it, I think rightly so, she described herself as like being the mother of Hong Kong and that she was disciplining essentially her spoiled children you know, who are protesting against this bill. And, and at some point she even you know, started having tears about all the sacrifices she's made for Hong Kong. But many people objected to her description as being the mother of Hong Kong disciplining her children through police brutality. Um, and you know, now there are protesters with signs that say, Carrie Lam is not my mother, which is actually kind of funny, I think. Here's the thing though, why am I telling you this story? I think unfortunately this is how we think of God sometimes. The way we think of God is the God who says he loves us and then pepper sprays us. He says he loves us and then what we get is excessive force to discipline us. And so we can live in fear of God's discipline and we hear that theme in this psalm. And yes, in God's providence, he may bring difficult things to us to turn our hearts and our faces back to him. But we have to remember this as those who believe in Christ, those who exist in the new covenant of Christ, that God's discipline for us is never God's punishment. And we, in our minds, don't know how to separate those things because God's punishment for the wrongs that we've committed have already been taken care of on the cross by Christ. And God would not be a just God if he took the punishment out on Christ and then says, I'm going to punish you again. Those of you who are lawyers in there know that that's a no-no. Can't double punish someone. And so God's anger against our wrongs has already been taken away. The punishment that our wrongs deserve has already been taken by Christ. And so his discipline is always the discipline of the best sense of the word. It is loving discipline meant to bring us back to him. I mean, this just happened to me yesterday, but Tristan ran out in front of cars, in front of High V, not looking at all which way to go or whether there were cars coming. And I yelled at him, Tristan, watch where you're going. Sometimes God seems harsh because he's yelling at us to protect us from harm, to get our attention so that we might not be hurt. The God of justice will not punish us again because that is what Christ took on the cross. He loves us and he wants to call us back to himself. He wants to call our hearts back to him. I certainly hope that if you are ever in that situation like I was with Tristan, that after Tristan or your child comes back to you that what you do is you you lovingly embrace your child instead of beat them for not looking which way they were going and whether there were cars coming and that is what God does he, he sometimes it feels like he's yelling for us to come back to get our attention to to protect us and yet when we come back it is always coming back to a loving embrace of safety 
And so he calls us in this psalm to turn away from just going through the motions, to turn away from living in whatever way we please, to turn away from formalism and hypocrisy and turn instead to a loving, dependent, grateful relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is simply made possible by Christ himself. The author of Hebrews is alluding to Psalm 50 when he says this in chapter 13, through him, Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. He points us to the application that Psalm 50 is pointing to. It's that application of offering a sacrifice of of praise, doing good out of love for God and others, recognizing that we can do this. And this is the beautiful theme of Hebrews, knowing that we can do this because of Christ and Christ once and for all sacrifice for us. And so when we recognize what Christ has done, the only response left for us is to praise him, to thank him, to live in dependence of him. And I hope as we come to the Lord's table now that we come hearts engaged to receive the grace of God. Let's pray.